Hello and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behaviour in a practical, fun and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello, and welcome back to the Potential Psychology Podcast. This is episode 72, and we're talking a bit about exercise, a bit about spirituality, a bit about Indigenous cultures, and quite a bit about a very select group of people who choose to run around and around an extended city block in New York City, not just for days, but for weeks at a time. My guest is Sanjay Rawal, an award-winning documentary maker based in New York City. We're talking about his film 3100 Run and Become. But as you'll hear, the film is just a starting point, really, for an in-depth, wide-ranging and I reckon quite insightful conversation about different paths to being our best selves. But before I introduce you to Sanjay, I have a little update for you. I have to say a big thank you to our partner for this episode of the show, People Analytics and the Future of Work, or PAFAO. The PAFAO Sydney 20 event is now less than a month away, and I have been able to secure a sneak peek at some of the speakers, a couple of whom we will be having here as guests on the show, which is very cool. And one of those amazing speakers is Shiran Yavoslavsky, who is the CEO of Cassiopeia. And in 2019, last year, Sharon was named in Forbes 30 Under 30 list in her home country of Israel. She leads a team at Cassiopeia who are working to make our workplaces safer, psychologically and emotionally, using some pretty amazing technologies. So Cassiopeia used available research and data on offensive behaviour at work. So things like sexual harassment, bullying and discrimination. And they've developed a software tool that measures and predicts the likelihood of offensive behaviour occurring. So they're able to kind of work out the likelihood of something occurring according to the demographics and various data they've got on workplaces and types of workplaces. And then they can use that to predict the likelihood and inform leaders and organisations so that they can then work to prevent it. So I'm intrigued by all of this because human beings are very complex. So turning that kind of data into a technology just sounds fascinating. So I'll be asking Sharon all the questions to find out more about how that works. And you can hear Sharon speak about this at the Bafau Sydney 20 event on March 3rd and 4th in Sydney CBD. It's going to be the perfect event if you work in human resources, people management, organisational development, people and culture, or you lead people, or you work with people, or you have any kind of responsibility for people in the workplace, and you want to know a bit more about how they work and how to create workplaces that allow them to work at their best. It is a two-day event, and I do have a special discount code as a speaker that you can use to receive $200 off the cost of registration. So when you're registering, which you can do at pafow.net, that's P-A-F-O-W.net, just pop the code SID200. So that's S-Y-D in the digits 
200 in the promo code box at registration and your discount will be applied automatically. I'm looking forward to it. A little nervous, but I'm looking forward to it and I can't wait to see you there too. Okay, so that's the update done. I think it's time to talk to our guest for today, Sanjay Rawal, about finding joy through exertion. With me today and coming to us, not from New York City where he hails, but in fact from Kota Kinabalu in Malaysia where he's visiting at the moment, is Sanjay Rawal. And Sanjay worked in the human rights and international development sectors for 15 years in over 40 countries before focusing his love for photography and storytelling onto filmmaking. His first feature, the award-winning Food Chains, was released in 2014 and explored agricultural labour in the United States. And his current film is called 3100 Run and Become, about the self-transcendence 3100 race, the biggest race in the world with the least fanfare and no prize. And Sanjay's here to talk to me and us, not only about the film and the incredible stories that it tells, but also to talk about the mind, meditation, and the relationship between spirituality, running and transcendence. Welcome, Sanjay. Thank you so much for having me. It's great great to be on your show. It's lovely to have you here. I have watched the film, as I was just saying to you, off the air, and I have so many questions. (laughs) I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was so informative to me just as a human being, but particularly as a psychologist and thinking about what might go on in the minds of people who engage in this kind of, do we call this an ultra marathon? Is that how it's defined? It's technically a multi-day race. You know, for, for listeners who, who might be curious, you know, a marathon is 26.2 miles, 42 kilometers. Then an ultra is anything above that 26.2 mile distance. But once you start getting into races that take more than a day or two, uh, we get into the realm of multi-day running. So can you tell us, before we explore the movie, can you tell us a bit more about the race and, and what got you interested in it? So this race, the self-transcendence 3,100-mile race, is the longest officially uh, certified running race in the world. It was started in 1997, actually by an Indian spiritual teacher named Sri Chinmoy, who was based in New York. The distance in kilometers is about 4,993 k's. Runners are required to average at least 59.8 miles, just a hair under 100 kilometers per day if they want to finish the race in the 52-day window. Most people would go, what are the logistics of the race? Are you running from San Francisco to New York? As a matter of fact, most multi-day races are actually held on closed loops because you don't want to worry about traffic. You want to be able to have aid, water, food. I mean, you need 10,000 calories in these races. You want to have that close at hand. So this race actually is staged on a half a mile, nearly a kilometer long loop on a sidewalk in New York City. It sounds absolutely impossible, but the fact of the matter is, and we explored this quite deeply in 3100 Run and Become, that running these types of distances takes people closer to the kind of essential nature of human beings than almost any other type of physical activity. Yeah, so... I couldn't get my head around it until I watched the film and then that really did give me that insight even, again, as you say, into the practicalities of it. 52 days just running around a single block and they do change direction each day, don't they? They, they do. That, that, that's the only variation. 
Yeah, so it's 52 days. So even, again, for me as a psychologist, I'm just thinking what, the, what kind of mind does it take to be able to, because I can imagine if you're running great distances or trail running or even marathons, you're traversing different terrain. You're going from place to place, A to B. But in these sorts of races, as you say, it's a closed loop. They're just running the same scenery <laughs> day in, day out. I mean, it, it, it's counterintuitive, but when you're when you're running in places that are outwardly beautiful, more often than not, the logistics are pretty occupying. And not just the logistics of food and, and water, but having to focus on the terrain and trying to avoid sprained ankles. And you end up using a lot of your mental power on the kind of minutiae rather than on the grandeur. You might have moments of absorbing the beauty, but in those experiences where you're pushing your body to the limit, you actually want to have as few variables as possible. Now, when it comes to the mental state of mind, I would say it's virtually impossible to run these types of distances with an attitude of mind over matter. Willpower is just the first step. You know, you can't do these races and, and deal with the amount of physical pain that gastrointestinal distress that people, you know, face just from the amount of calories and water that's necessary without really finding a way to be happy. And it's not a mental happiness more than it's an actual enjoyment. And this is why in the movie, we focus so much on indigenous cultures that have running traditions. Although this next little anecdote is not in the film, it's the essence of the film. I was on a, on a uh, running retreat with a bunch of Native American runners, and we were passing through the Hopi Nation in Arizona, in the southwest of the U.S., and that particular area of Arizona is the longest continuously inhabited region in uh, the Western Hemisphere. The Hopi villages have been there for more than 7,000 years. The uh, Hopi elder named Rex Talium Tewa exhorted us on one morning's long run to find joy through exertion. Now, most of us who exert, you know, whether it's lifting a heavy weight or running a marathon, in that period of exertion, we're not thinking about the moment. We're thinking about getting through it. We're trying to will ourselves through it, you know, gather the kind of mental energy to try to achieve a certain result. This Hopi elder Rex really pushed us to try to find moments of peace and happiness and joy in those moments of extreme exertion. And that's the key to races like the 3100. You know, it doesn't come from just the race itself, but it comes from changing one's mindset and practicing how to be totally, naturally, and spontaneously happy in a moment where your body is screaming at you to stop. And that's what I found fascinating. And, and I suppose because I don't have a background in running, I'm probably like most of our listeners where every you know couple of years I think oh, I should really do a bit of running and I kind of max out at about five kilometres <laughs> and then do that for a short while and then give up again because I'm, I know and I know as I'm doing it that I'm way too caught up in my head thinking about having to do it, how much it hurts, whether or not I'm enjoying it, how far I've got to go, have I got to the finish, you know, that's kind of where my head is at. And through just listening to you on, on other podcasts and, and watching the film as well, starting to get my head around the idea that this is very much a meditative process, I guess we'd call it, this being able to restrict the mind to that present moment in order to, as you say, overcome the pain, the obstacles, but also interesting what you were saying about that single loop 
and and actually not wanting the distraction. You, it's almost like you, yeah, you can't take too many more inputs in because that takes us perhaps out of that meditative state. Would that be right? That's correct. You know, that there's kind of a burgeoning field in, in sports psychology and physiology that studies something called the flow state. And that's kind of a, a metaphysical state where athletes are at peak performance. And the people study in hindsight, like the, the attitude, the feelings, the emotions athletes have when they just crush their expectations the previous time and enjoy the process. And that's the flow state. It's not an absence of pain or exertion. But it's the state where you actually get joy and happiness where your body or mind is being pushed to the limit. And in this race, you know, the, the appeal of running the 3100 is to be able to enter into that flow state and stay in that state for 45, 50, 51, 52 days. It's an absolutely unique idea. But this is, this is a question for you. I think for non-runners and, and non-multi-day runners, and not, most of us aren't multi-day runners, the key to these types of races is to have a mindset that allows you to enjoy and revel in uncertainty. And you can see how that might be a, a tremendous skill to have in day-to-day life, even if life isn't chaotic. But when you get to something that the mind considers to be a problem, do you have the experience to totally diminish the problem? diminish the effect that it has on your psychology. Obviously, you need to deal with it in a responsible, mindful way. But most of us are buffeted by fear, doubt, by insecurity. And the mindset for these types of races requires someone to not only challenge those feelings and emotions, but completely disregard them. Yeah. Yes. As I said, I was sort of starting to get my head around this as a concept, but that idea that, and I mean, as a psychologist, you know, me and my colleagues, we exhort people to take this approach in their everyday life of, you know, there's only so much in life that we can control. In fact, there's not really very much in life that we can control at all. And our need to control and our insistence on trying to control, you know, whether it's other people or what happens at work or the variables in our lives can lead to a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress and a whole lot of other dysfunction and behavioral things that don't really work in our favor. So what I'm hearing you say is that when you can get your mind, say, you know, using this multi-day running as an example, when you can get your mind to the place where you say you can't control any of the variables, you can't control if you, well, I mean, obviously you can to an extent, but because this is 52 days, you know, and, and some of the protagonists in your film, they got sick. You catch viruses, you get blisters, there's hail, there's thunderstorms, there's heat, it sounds like you're saying that, you know, just part of this is getting your head around the idea that you, you just can't control that. But if you can enjoy being in the moment, some of that stuff slips away. Exactly. The, the mantra for this race is to just keep moving forward. You know, people have to be on the course about 18 hours a day. The course opens at 6 a.m. People have to, to go to their apartments at, at midnight. But you can't run hard the whole day and you can't lollygag the whole day. So it's kind of a combination of of the two. And if you focus on your pace, on your mile or kilometer times incessantly, you're going to drive yourself mad. You have to get to a state where you're just happy moving forward. And you really have to try to begin to enjoy the kind of moments and go moment to moment to moment. But make sure that at every step, regardless of what comes at you, you just put one foot in front of the other. And I think that there's a life lesson in that. We always want to reach a result in a certain time, 
with a certain expectation. But the idea to transcend yourself is to completely abandon the idea of the result or your attachment to the result. In India, in Hinduism, there's a, a famous maxim, you have the right to act, but not to the fruits thereof. You know, peace is the state where you can move forward without any expectations, like enthusiasm minus expectations. So we have the right to, I suppose we, we're able to control perhaps the process, but not the outcome might be a, a kind of modern Western way of saying that. Yeah. You know, the kind of like greeting card way is the journey is the destination. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what the Hopi elder was saying from an exertion point of view. It's like, you have to find joy in the exertion. When you're pushing yourself in work and personal life and business, it's not the result that's going to give you the most joy, even though we think it is. But, you know, the results are an experience of success or failure. But if you really want to transcend all of your concepts of what you're able to do, you know, who you are, what your capacity is, you have to be able to really focus on the moment where you're at and revel that moment and just be as happy and as peaceful as you can be. And that, and that really requires shedding all ideas of what the result might be. It's like you just push. That's all you can do. You just work with a goal in mind, but you know, understanding that you might not get there or you might get something even more satisfying. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly, I mean, the individuals who undertake the race, who you follow through the film, you know, they allude to that, that idea that there's almost like, I don't know what I'm going to get out of it, but I know I'm going to be a better person at the end. I mean, that, that's the interesting thing. We, we spend time, as you know, in the movie with the Kalahari Bushmen. They're, they're considered to be the oldest extant population or civilization on earth. They've lived in the, in the Kalahari Desert in Botswana for more than 125,000 years. And spending time with them really opened the idea to me of um, the, the prime role that running played in humanity's evolution. The idea that one of the primal activities that men and women did to connect with nature, to connect with you know, in their words, like the Holy Spirit were dance and running. Our Navajo character, for example, in the movie says, you know, when you run your feet, you're praying to Mother Earth, you're breathing in Father Sky. There's a few activities like that that remind us that the physical body can be and maybe perhaps is essential to spiritual growth. Most of the time, at least in Eastern spirituality and, and modern Judeo-Christian spirituality, the idea of pilgrimage and moving places by feet, exerting your physical body is not part of practice. Whereas in the past, there was an intimate connection between mental health, spiritual health, and physical health. The body had to have goals too, you know, and those goals would support your mental or your psychological or your spiritual goals. Yeah. And it's really interesting because I think, you know, as you say, so for part of our Western culture, that wasn't a done thing. In fact, I grew up in the seventies and eighties and running wasn't even a thing really until the eighties. People didn't go for a run as I remember it anyway, or if they did, it was a very small section of the population in the 1970s. And, and it's become a big part of our culture in, in one sense and, and the sense, and I'm not sure I'm going to articulate this quite right, but the sense that I get is that it's almost that 
end goal pursuit. I'm going to run a marathon this year. I'm going to, you know, rather than what you're alluding to that was part of traditional cultures of the joy of the doing it itself, what it brings in terms of happiness, what it brings in terms of well-being. And in the science now, you know, in the field of psychology, so Kelly McGonigal, who's a health psychologist, has just released a book called, I'm pretty sure the title's The Joy of Movement. I'll have to double check that. I'll put it in the show notes anyway. And it's starting to, we're starting to, you know, come back to the science and say, well, what does the role that even just movement, whether it's, and we're not necessarily talking, you know, multi-day running type exertion here, but just the joy of movement, what does it bring to us, not just physically, but psychologically? I mean, the interesting thing is when we look at running in the 20th and 21st century, you know, we understand that if you've got the intention of improving your health, you know, running will do that for you. If you've got the intention of looking better, if that's the intention, you know, running will do that for a person too. But what traditional running cultures inform is that running can actually be a pathway to spiritual transformation. And every single culture on earth, whether they were European or Asian or Australian, Aboriginal or Native American or Western hemispherical cultures, at one point, whether it was 500 years ago, like in the Western hemisphere, you know, just before the advent of, of horses or 10,000 years ago before the domestication of horses and other animals in, in Eurasia, human beings ran. We moved on our feet either to hunt or to travel or to pass messages. And it wasn't just an activity of locomotion, but it was an activity that was expected of young men and women to learn about themselves and to gain a sense of identity. Even in India, which is one of the most kind of sedentary, non-athletic cultures in the world, most coming-of-age ceremonies require the young men or young women to actually go on a run. And that was a, a traditional rite of passage and a way that, and a tool that people used uh, self-actualization. People are seeing more and more now the positive benefits of running on psychology, but I don't think our culture has yet connected or reconnected the idea that running movement are critical components to easy components to maintaining a very positive mental state. Yeah. So it's almost, it's not just a nice to have in a way you're saying that, you know, as human beings going right back to our ancestry, it's almost a, a something we must have that kind of movement as a source of self-awareness. I love what you said about learning about yourself because it is, you know, even from like the small amount of running that I have done, you do have to, even just the opportunity maybe to think or to reflect or just that being immersed in nature are all opportunities to learn and grow as people, aren't they? I'm totally with you. And the Kalahari Bushman, you know, basically said that from time immemorial, from the earliest beginnings of human civilization, running was a way to grow spiritually. And native, the Native American sections of the U.S. I've got some friends who work on suicide prevention and advocacy. And when they get calls from people, at least if those calls are on a cell phone, you know, they tell the people like, hey, go for a walk, you know, go for a run. Don't do what you want to do. And, you know, on a more practical level, anytime you get to a state where you're worried about making a really big decision, where there's a, a really big challenge ahead of you, don't sit home and, and let that thought eat you up. Go out for a run, even if you never run. Go out for a walk, even if you barely walk. There's something physiological that happens within that activity 
that obviously has a biochemical component to help us combat negative emotion and negative feeling. Yeah. Listeners to the show would know that I am an advocate of what I call the well-being walk because I'm not necessarily a runner, but I am a yoga practitioner and I'm a walker. So, you know, and, and even I work with groups in workplaces just talking about well-being and, and, you know, how we improve our function and performance in workplaces. And one of the things that I prescribe, so to speak, is just when you get to those lulls in your physical energy, your psychological energy, your emotional energy, go outside and walk around the block and just see the magic that happens both in terms of how you think and how you feel, but also your creativity and productivity when you return. I'm a thousand percent a fan of, of yours and that philosophy. It seems antithetical, but traditional cultures will inform us otherwise that if we want to practice anything contemplative, yes, you know, prayer and meditation in silence is, is essential. Self-reflection is essential, but there is a way to bring that contemplative energy into physical movement, whether it's a contemplative walk, a well-being walk, whether it's changing the intention of going for runs, anything physical that we do isn't necessarily going to have spiritual ramifications. But if we put the intention of personal transformation into that physical exercise or physical regime, it's bound to help us because that's what it has always done. We can say now more than ever, we're disconnected with that prime tool that humanity used for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, that was one of the things that I found fascinating about because you interweave, you know, within the story of the film about the 3100 race itself, you've interwoven some of these stories of traditional cultures. So you mentioned the Kalahari Bushmen, and I've forgotten the terminology, but the Japanese, ancient Japanese kind of walking the thousand miles, is it? Also the Navajo culture and some of the stories there in running. So as you say, you know, being able to take us back to really learn, and this is happening, you know, with meditation and Eastern cultures and what is it that human beings perhaps had once that we've lost somewhere along the line and and is there stuff that we can gain from revisiting that and exploring that? Absolutely. You know, we we look at three cultures in the movie, the Kalahari Bushmen, the the Navajo Native Americans and a sect of monks in the highlands of Japan that trek a thousand days split over seven or eight years, which means, you know, 100 days a year in those 100-day cycles. And they have to complete a prescribed mileage per day in each cycle. The first cycle might require 11 and a half or 16, 17 kilometers a day. So by the time they get to the ninth and 10th cycle, they're pushing 85 kilometers a day. And the kicker, as you know from watching the film, is that if the aspirant doesn't complete their daily mileage, they have to take their own life. It seems like the most (laughs) outlandish consequence. And granted, no one has had to take their life in the last 150 years. They've been much more stringent on the preparation. And that's the crux. If you attempt or start an activity that might not lead to a positive result, it's very easy to be overcome by fear on day one. And then that fear becomes like a a self-fulfilling prophecy and you can't avoid the consequence that you're so afraid of or that you're so desperately trying to avoid. But if your practice and your your preparation are the exact opposite of that, in in the case of these monks, they, they practice moving in bliss. They practice moving in prayer so that the idea of the consequence of, of this activity 
is a complete afterthought. That said, people might ask why the consequences are severe, um, but in, in Tendai and Zen Buddhism, there's the notion that unless you have an incredibly severe consequence for failure, uh, prescribed or a set discipline will become diluted over time. Like, Ellen, we love you. Like, if, if you were doing the, this thousand day walk and at day 713, we realized as the overseer that you weren't going to make it, we might say, well, let's not make this a thousand day walk anymore. Let's call it a 712 day walk and say, Ellen, you know, don't worry about the 713th day. You're done. Yep. And just like that, the event has been diminished. But because of this consequence, it's kind of been an unbroken, unvarnished, unadulterated practice in this most sacred area of Japan for almost 1,500 years now. And so there's a, a need to maintain that, a kind of an inner need perhaps to maintain that, to continue that. And that's some serious accountability in there. Exactly. <laughs> and obviously it's not something that anybody would toss out there. Um, and of course, in this case, it's entirely voluntary, but this is the absolute edge, like the nice edge of the pursuit of perfection through physical activity. Yeah. You sort of alluded to something there and I, I thought about it earlier as well. There's a kind of a juxtaposition here talking about, you know, being focused on the moment, being focused on the process, forget about the outcome, enjoy it, you know, even as you say, that kind of the hallmark version of the journey being the important part, et cetera, et cetera. And what's actually required to prepare for these sorts of things? You know, there's, there's, I know in the conversation or some of the conversation in the film that somebody talks about the kind of the military element of it, the preparation, the timing, sleep at this point, eat here, you know, in order to maintain. So it's almost like we need to find some kind of balance between all of that preparation and a bit of precision around some of those variables so that we can be free in the moment. Would that be right? Yeah. You know, the, the preparation for the 3,100 mile race is counterintuitive. The body will get adapted to the distance, you know, in the first 10 days to two weeks. So it's not like people have to go and practice doing 50 or 60 miles a day. In fact, that would be a hindrance to their progress. They need to come into the race very fresh, but they also need to know what it feels like to move when you're exhausted. And so typically they'll just do, you know, an hour of slow jogging or walking five days a week. But then on a Saturday, they might go out and do seven hours. And then Sunday, when they're exhausted from that seven hours, they might do 10 hours. And that's the kind of physiological process to get the mitochondria, you know, working at a, at a high clip to, to burn energy efficiently. But the crux of it all is in those moments of exhaustion, in those moments of discipline in those long stretches of running and walking, can you enjoy it? You know, mm. can you not forcing yourself to enjoy it, but can you actually unlock a part of you that just is in bliss? Now, the thing I've seen with these multi-day races is it's akin to fasting where, you know, people who've done some sort of cleanse or fast, you know, all experience it in the first one or two or three or four days, it's, pretty much torture. And then somehow magically it becomes easier. We know that that magic is kind of metabolic state of ketosis where the body's burning fat rather than carbohydrate, burning fuel stores rather than needing to take in calories. Something happens to the mind 
after three, four, five, ten days of a multi-day, where the mind all of a sudden and very clearly moves out of the way. And so when you're doing an event like that, you know, obviously the, the thing that seems like it would be the most vicious aspect is the boredom. Mm. And what does boredom mean? The mind telling you this is dumb, you can't do it, we've got other things to do, and bringing out doubt, insecurity. But when that goes away and the mind is peaceful, you know, you experience not just the constant flow of endorphins, but you release emotions, all the positive emotions that the mind kind of puts a blockade on moment by moment in our day, they come out like love becomes spontaneous, peace becomes spontaneous, joy becomes spontaneous. And that's the reason why people come to the race. It's not just to say they've done it. It's not to will themselves through. It's like the characters in the film say, they know that by the end of the race, they will be better people than when they started. And, and this is exactly why. And this is the transcendence that it's all about. Yeah, the idea of, of self-transcendence is that when we make progress in life, when we do something better than we did the day before, when we achieve something that's a little bit more significant or pushes our capacity, that gives us spontaneous joy as human beings. Self-transcendence is at the heart of all of our experiences of happiness and joy and achievement. And so what is self-transcendence? It's literally what that Hopi elder said. If you can find joy through exertion, you can achieve self-transcendence. Doing better than before isn't spo- than you ever have isn't spontaneous. It's like you've got to exert, you've got to do the work. But you can't just do the work and expect a certain result and expect a certain achievement. If you want to really just categorically in a guaranteed way go beyond everything that you've ever imagined you could do, the formula, again, it's counterintuitive, is like, don't think about the result. Think about the moment. Find a way to be incredibly ecstatically happy in the moment. Push in those moments and voila, you'll do better than you could have ever imagined. And I love that find joy through exertion because even as I'm sort of thinking about that, you know, that I think for probably most of us, the idea of running around a block for 52 days is probably beyond our reasonable comprehension. But even if it's just going for that walk or going for a short run and the idea of that almost feels impossible, I for me anyway, as I'm thinking about it, the idea of even being able to use that as a little mantra is just to find joy through exertion, you know, just find the joy in this. Get out of your own head. Don't worry about what hurts and how it feels and whether you've got the time, just find joy in that moment as you physically exert yourself. I love that exercise because you're right. It's not something that we can just say, like when we go out the door, I'm going to find joy in exertion. It seems, again, like a misnomer and but if, if we reflect on that mantra, if we bring it in to our mind and our consciousness as often as possible, we begin to understand the depth of it. And we begin to not just understand it, but we realize it. It becomes a spontaneous experience where it becomes a truth, a living truth, and not just a really advanced fortune cookie saying. <laughs> yeah, we, we come to believe it if we can actually practice it remind ourselves of it, immerse ourselves in it, then hopefully we come to believe it in our kind of core being. And from my experience and from just seeing how this applies to a couple of traditional cultures I've I've witnessed, there's truth in it. 
and it's like there is power in there and you can unlock that truth and make that truth a part of your daily being by really putting some effort into understanding how that phrase applies to your life and seeing if, if in fact it does apply to your life and then experiencing the results. Yeah, because it doesn't need to be, I mean, obviously there's, we're talking about physical exertion, but I think probably exertion in anything as we seek to achieve something. I know in positive psychology, the field that I work in, we know that striving, it's the actual striving towards a goal rather than the end result that contributes to well-being when we explore the research around that. So yeah, whether it's exertion, perhaps in something outside of a physical realm, psychological exertion, you know, mental exertion, what do we get from that? How does it actually begin to refuel us and, and build us up to become a better version of ourselves? Exactly. And I mean, this, this applies, you know, obviously to relationships as well. It's not saying from friendships or, or intimate relationships, like where do we want to be in one year or two years or five years or in counseling, where do we want to be at the end of it? But can we really be happy that we're doing this together, that we're trying to become a better partnership together? And that in two seconds of effort, we're going to be better than we were two seconds ago. Yeah. Can we enjoy that process of striving rather than saying like, this is my idea of perfection. That's your idea of perfection. One of us needs to like abandon it. Yeah. Can we just do it together? That's a lovely way to, to frame it up. Sanjay, I'm really interested how you came to all of this because you have a background in running yourself, don't you? And I'd love to know more about the story of how you came to be interested in this as a field. Well, you know, it's a great question. And then I'll, I'll go back even further. You know, when I was at university, I was a lot smarter than I am now. My, my parents both had PhDs and I was pushed into really advanced things at a really early age. But after a couple of years of university, when I had enough credits to graduate, just because I killed myself in school, it became apparent that the things that I saw in myself that were deficient, the parts of myself that I didn't like, the parts of myself that made me insecure, my relationship to other people and all the stuff in between was never going to be solved by school. And it wasn't going to be solved by achieving a certain degree or getting a certain job and you know, making progress financially. The answers that I wanted really required a totally different pursuit. And that's when I started getting into meditation. And just like, you know, I did in the academic life, you know, when I wanted to learn something, I tried to go to the very best person. So I, I realized that self-help is a misnomer. Self-care, as positive as some of those practices are, is a misnomer. It's like, you know, you can't get anywhere in life without someone else's help. It's just the way things are. Like maybe the first person to achieve perfection or enlightenment on earth, you know, did it by themselves. But in Eastern spirituality, the idea of mentorships or gurus or guides is absolutely essential. There's no fast and steady progress without going to somebody who's already achieved the state that you want to get to. So that's just a long way of saying that I needed to find a teacher. And I was really, really lucky to go to a series of, of meditation workshops taught by students of an Indian spiritual master named Sri Chinmoy. And as soon as I could, after graduating, I moved from California to New York, where he was based, although he was from India, he was based in New York City. And I just said, I'm going to 
put myself at your seat. You know, you're the master. Your goal is for your students to achieve ultimate happiness and peak happiness. I'm going to abandon all of my preconceptions of what that means. Like it doesn't necessarily mean a supermodel wife, driving a Ferrari, living in a mansion, or even something simple like having X number of kids and working nine to five. Like I'm going to throw all my conceptions out the window and just focus on that result on just being happy right here, right now, and seeing what that shapes me into. And he absolutely changed my life. So obviously, you know, in, in your profession, it does no good for somebody to come to you once. It does no good for somebody to say like, Ellen, tell me the three books I need to read or the YouTube videos I need to watch. It's like, if they want to change through the path that you have to offer, it needs to be something that they commit to, not just for a day or a session, but maybe for years, maybe for a decade, the goal isn't something static. And that, that's kind of the backstory of how I really developed a, a viewpoint on life. And the long and short of it is I ended up working in human rights and you know, international development, things where I felt that I can be of service. I realized in terms of my own psychology and my own very specific tendencies that my happy place was in a place where I was less focused on my own ego and less focused on my own sense of personal achievement, that seeing other people, and again, this isn't like me being Mother Teresa, I'm sure everybody is different, but in my case, it's like, if I got wrapped up into my own achievements, I, I would actually be unhappy. But if I forced myself to focus on, on getting other people to their achievements, I would actually be happy. And that morphed into telling people stories, documentaries, et cetera. That's fascinating in itself, you know, just as you were saying that kind of being of service to others, because I know, you know, we're really starting to look as a profession psychologist that into, you know, what gives people a sense of meaning and purpose. You know, we know that's an important contributor to well-being. And for me, you know, it's interesting, fascinating, emerging research. But for me, the best kind of explanation or the thing that's had most meaning for me around that sense of meaning is being of service to something greater than yourself. Yeah. So we know that people who are able to do that, yeah, find happiness. And, and, and that's why, you know, again, without meaning to offend anybody, that's why like the idea of self-care to me, it's, it's like the ABC. It's like the first step. Yeah. In Eastern spirituality, there's a very apt analogy that says that, you know, we all exist as individual drops of water, just as a, as a symbol. Like we're all individual drops of water. But when that drop drops into the ocean, the ocean of consciousness, it doesn't lose its identity. But rather, that individual drop then has the right to identify as the actual ocean. And that happiness doesn't come from kind of a myopic, insular view of identity, like I am this, this is what defines me. Identity actually is the process of realizing that our identity, our sense of self can be merged with the entire universe. And that when we're in that state of self with a capital S, you know, we're in kind of our peak level of happiness, peak level of consciousness. We're in the peak realm of positivity and growth, and it has much less to do with us as the individual drop than the power we gain as identifying as an ocean. Yeah, that common humanity. Exactly, and it's seeing your, literally seeing yourself and others and understanding that all of your goals are for better or for worse tied into everyone and everything around you. Mm. Like you said in the beginning, we are not in control of 
anything, whether one is religious or not. But just from like the atomic nature, the psychological nature of life, even if you're living as a hermit in the woods, like you're not in control of the weather. If you're living in society, you're not in control of anyone's reactions and anyone's kind of vibrations around you. And on an ultimate level, as with the race, can you embrace it? You know, understanding that you're in this petri dish of extreme uncertainty at any moment of the day, can you embrace it with positivity rather than, than fear and, you know, even insecurity? And bring yourself back into that moment. Yeah, that's exactly why I made a movie about this race that only 14 or 15 people do every year and only 100 individuals have even attempted. It's not something that I'm necessarily, you know, wanting to do. Rather, it's an allegory. You know, the things that people experience in that race lead to beautiful conversations like the one that we're having, you know, of personal transformation through expansion of self, through attacking and enjoying obstacles and to finding a way to really not just be in the moment, but like revel and enjoy and kind of ecstatically experience moments of exertion, of effort, of progress. And Sanjay, it has been a beautiful conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I have so many more questions that I could ask you, but I'm conscious of your time. Now you are heading out here to Australia, are you not? Yeah, the movie's going to be re- released in theaters from Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, uh, Perth, and a few other places on March 17th. And I'll be at all those screenings. And then the, the film is going to be online, I believe, around April 2nd. Wonderful. And I believe you're here also, the release is coinciding with the Sri Chinmoy Canberra 48-hour race. Is that right? Yeah. So in, in, in Canberra, and people might not even know this, but there's a, an Australian national championship for 48 hours, that two-day, multi-day race. And, you know, again, it's like held in a pedestrian location around a track, but people from all over Australia will be descending on Canberra to see who will be crowned the Australian national champion in that race. And, you know, moreover, what sorts of experiences people will get you don't run these races in isolation, even though things like the 3100 seem like an individual event. The fact of the matter is you're out on the course with, in the 3100, 10 other people. In this race, you know, dozens of other people. And your experience of the race is intimately intertwined with the experience that you have with other people. So it's, it's going to be a great event. I believe it's March 19th, 20th, and 21st in Canberra. They're doing a 48-hour race, 24 hours in. They're starting a 24-hour race. Then they're starting a 12-hour race, a six-hour race, uh, a marathon, a half marathon, and a 10,000-meter race. So it's all going to happen on this track. So it's going to kind of be an an extravaganza. And by the end of it all, when that final hour hits, there's going to be a bunch of exhausted but happy and elated people all in the same place. So I, I'm really excited just to, to, to be there. Yeah, absolutely. Look at, again, you know, as somebody who hasn't historically had a tremendous interest in running, certainly our entire conversation, the documentary, even just talking about that event now has really piqued my interest. And I am going to go away with that mantra of finding the joy and exertion and see how I can apply that 
to my own life. Sanjay, thank you again so much for your time, for your thoughtfulness, for your insights. I've loved sharing all of the stories with you and really appreciate it. We will put the links to everything that we've discussed, including the screenings of the documentary. I've got a link to the trailer that I can place in the show notes as well, the 48-hour race in Canberra where people might be able to come and find you and say hello at the screenings and everything else so that everyone can learn a little bit more. It it was such an honor for me. Like I'm a jack of all trades, master of none, but to be able to kind of like be in the same space as you, an absolute expert and, you know, feel like what I have to say is even of remote interest to you is really, really humbling. and, And thank you for that experience. Well, look, all of my, the entire audience will have learned a huge amount and given us a lot to think about. And that's what we always pursue here. And I know that it's common humanity. We all learn from each other. It's a community exercise, self-growth and fulfilling our potential. So I'm glad that we've been able to do that for each other today. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Alan. Thank you again. Thank you for sharing that chat with me, with Sancho Rawal. 3100 Run and Become hits cinemas in New Zealand this week and Australia next month, so that's March. It's also available online now for audiences in the United States and in Canada. So if you are in the US or in Canada, you will find it on Google Play, iTunes and Amazon. And for those of us in other parts of the world, we've put a link to the screening dates in the show notes for the episode along with a link to watch the trailer for the movie. And if you get a chance to catch the film, take it. Not only is it fascinating, but it's really beautifully made as well. I thoroughly enjoyed it and I'm quite keen to go see it again when it hits Melbourne later in March this year. We have also included a link to the Sri Chinmoy Canberra 48-hour race which Sanjay and I discussed. It's being held at the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra if you're interested in getting along to check that out or maybe participate. There are plenty of shorter events if a 48-hour race is just not your speed. You can find out more about Sanjay and his work, including his previous films, in the show notes as well. All the links and the details are at potential.com.au forward slash podcast. You'll also find a transcript for this episode of the show there as well. A big thank you to our partners for this episode, Pafau, People Analytics and the Future of Work. The Pafau 20 Sydney event is taking place at the Amora Hotel Jamison in Sydney CBD on the 3rd and 4th of March. You'll find all the details and a link to register at pafau.net and also in our show notes. And don't forget that discount code that I mentioned in our intro. It is SID, S-Y-D, 200, numerals 200. So who do we have for you next week? Well, we're going to explore the future next week. We're touching on a topic that we have covered here on the show before, and that is the future of work, or perhaps more importantly, what might work and workplaces look like in the future? My guest is Tess Walton, a shaper of the future of work. Tess's passion and expertise is in helping employers to think differently about jobs and employment. So her clients, with her help, embrace the diversity of age and experience and attitudes as well as ethnicity and gender in our community to kind of package work up differently. So it's a different approach. It's really future focused. It's good for business, good for people and good for our community. So tune in next week to discover what work will look like 
for future generations and what we need to do now to help them to be ready for it and maybe help ourselves as well. That is episode 73 of the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm looking forward to having you here with me for that conversation with Tess Walton. But in the meantime, go forth, thrive, flourish and fulfil your potential. Potential.